Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. This week, Reverend Portia Kazanga is our special speaker. Portia is the director of Senior High Youth Ministries at First Church. Good morning. It is my pleasure this morning to be here again, uh, especially in this capacity of a preacher to share the message uh, whilst Chris is sitting there. <laughs> I feel so much blessed to be given this opportunity to preach, um, especially to my beloved church family. I mean, I have all the stories of how we have become part of this church family and community. And we are so much loved beyond measure that most of the times, I mean, I just check myself like, do I even deserve this? But I'm so much grateful for all of you, for all what you do for the support. And so now we come to the point where we listen to God speak to us. So uh, what if we start by pausing in a prayer? Lord, Thank you for the gift of your word. Indeed, thy word is the food to our soul. And so as we are here, open our hearts and our minds that we may hear you and you alone. Amen. Today in our United Methodist uh, calendar, the liturgical calendar. It is marked as the Transfiguration Sunday, which is a very special Sunday uh, in the tradition of the church and the gospel itself. It is recorded in three gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Luke, of course, does some elaboration of the event that we do not find in either Matthew or Mark, and he writes it in a way that is very understandable to any ordinary reader. In all three Gospels, the event is located somewhere in the middle of Jesus' narrative, in between the birth story and the crucifixion story. It is distant enough to stop and reflect on the path that Jesus had already traveled and what he is becoming. Hence, I refer to it as the mountaintop sandwich, that which you get when you have hiked and you are tired and you are hungry and it's very delicious. I'd like to first give a brief context of the transfiguration story where we are coming from to be here at the top of the mountain and seeing Jesus being changed or transfigured into a glorious divine person. Prior to this event, the gospel presents us with Jesus' manifestations or epiphanies, Jesus showing himself to people living among people and manifest the power of God through miracles of healing, providing food to the hungry. He had spent enough much time with his disciples that 
they should now know who he is and what he is up to. Indeed, at this point, because of what they have witnessed, what they have seen in their journey with Jesus, the disciples are proud of their master. As they move with him, watching, witnessing all these miracles, they are now convinced that this is the Messiah. But a different Messiah than Jesus' true Messiahship. For the disciples, Jesus was the promised Messiah to overthrow the Roman government and to bring a new kingdom to the Jewish people. And at this point, I think, because they have seen what they have done, they are so much excited about what would bring to their life. Of course, if Jesus was to conquer the Romans, his disciples were automatically becoming his cabinet. And so after witnessing the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish, they are already seeing their successful future as the government of the new Jewish nation. I'd like to assume that in the minds of some of them, they would already see how their government was gonna be successful, especially in the Department of Health and Welfare. They wouldn't spend much budget, right? <laughs> because their master can work the little, can work on the little and make it more, and can heal the sick without special treatments that take a lot of money. And now, because Jesus is Lord, he knows our hearts. No matter how much we can hide our thoughts, he saw this in his disciples, that somewhere, somehow, there is something wrong. They are not getting it. They are not understanding what does it mean to be a Messiah. So after he fed the 5,000, he asked them an identity question. Who do you say I am? And Peter, right away, jumped in and said, God's Messiah. And indeed, this was the climax news to hear in this conversation. However, because Jesus is wisdom, he didn't ask further explanation from Peter. But he used Peter's profession as an occasion to predict his death. He went on and telling them and breaking the news that he's gonna die. The son of man must suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he kept on going telling them about the cost of discipleship. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. One would think that since Peter got the identity question right, this would not be hard on them. They, they could have just understand that, of course, I mean, because you are the Messiah, what else should we expect? We're gonna suffer and you're gonna die. But from the narrative, it's clear that this was sad news. This did not sit well with the disciples. The disciples were angry about this because to them, the Messiah must be successful. 
and they hoped for that success with their master. But boom, death message. Indeed, it was a lot to digest, suffering and death. We then tell that they were angry because after the conversation uh, in, in the identity story, there's a moment of silence. There's a week of silence. The disciples are in mood swings. In fact, according to the Gospel of Mark, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter even went ahead and rebuked Jesus, saying, never, this will not happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him back and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block. They think Jesus is not getting it right. For according to them, Messiahship means the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation who will lead them to success. Messiah for the disciples and some Jews is success. Indeed, as people, we may jump to critique the disciples for getting it wrong, but I sympathize with them. Let's face it. I kind of see where they are coming from. You know, sometimes life can be too good that you forget that one day you will be crying. Imagine with all the hopes they have about being successful and bringing the chosen ones to be close to the Messiah. When they think they are closer to overcome the Romans, when they think they are closer to the state house, boom, suffering and death message. It's not easy. It's a threat to their future. It's a threat to their life in general. It's a difficult spot to be, to just think life is flourishing and boom, there is bad news. I once been at this spot, being a young girl, spoiled and loved so much, thinking life is just going to be that, all of a sudden, boom, mom is sick. Not just sick, but sick with a deadly disease that didn't have cure at that time. At that point, I really started to see that the future is dark. To think of how I am going to adjust from used to have what I want and now to go without from hanging out with mommy, being mommy girl, and now not to be able to see her again, only to wait for aunts and uncles who have their families. And I mean, what I'll get is only leftovers, right? From fresh meal to leftovers. It's not easy to sit in that moment of unknowing what lays ahead of you. The disciples may now be wondering, is this going to end well? What an embarrassment and a shame to go back to our families that we left to follow Christ 
And now we go back and tell them what we had just followed a defeated Messiah. Disciples are stuck. They are stuck in what it was and what it is and what it should be and what is becoming ahead of them. Friends, like the disciples, sometimes life throws us in these stuck moments. Right now, we are stuck in COVID pandemic. We cannot even breathe. Since 2020, we have lost so many and so much in this pandemic. Let alone, we have lost our faces because we are required to wear masks, of which our, our faces wear these beautiful expressions where you can see the smiles of every person, where you can tell who is your friend, who is your enemy, but we are deprived of that. I'm not saying masks are bad, but I'm telling what the pandemic, what it's done to us. Indeed, in our families, in church, in ad boards, we had conflicts on whether to mask or unmask. And church attendance had even gone lower, not only in this church, but in many churches, because of that conflict about how we handle COVID policy. We are just stuck. Every time we meet, be it a staff meeting, ad board, we are just thinking, what's the new policy around COVID? How many days do we have to quarantine? How many days do we have to do this? We are just stuck and so drained in this pandemic. As if it's not enough, we are stuck in our church politics. The UMC that we had so much proud of, like myself, I always laugh with my friend April, I always tell you, April, I am a UMC. I was born and bred in UMC, and I love UMC. And friends, to see it being fragmented the way it is right now, that some pieces are even missing, that we cannot even unite, it's just a grave sacrifice for the church and for the future. Some here even stopped to come to church because of the bad news of what is going on in our church. Some have even stopped to bring their offerings and tithe because they do not want their money to support some hidden agendas that they don't know. We are just stuck in our church politics. We are stuck in our mercy, let alone the clergy. It's a threat to our pension. It's a threat to our contributions. For all these years, I mean, I haven't served long enough than Chris, but I have served long. And we don't know whether we could stay or we could leave. We have become We have come to a point where we can not even trust each other 
When you stand up to speak, you have to be very careful. You have to really select the right words because words had become to mean so many things to different people. And we are just living in the moment of being too careful. We are stuck. We are crushed and we cannot pretend no more. We are crushed. In our families, we are stuck. We are stuck in our histories, in our family histories, that because of what our parents did to us, we cannot move on. It runs in the family. I was talking to one of my friends that there's so much negative psychology that is enabling brokenness in our families. Everything, every misbehavior is diagnosed to something else. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that maybe 80% of our kids are on some kind of medication because they were told that you cannot get out of this. We are stuck. We are stuck with the histories in our families of addiction. Oh, just because, I mean, there's no way I can get out of it because my dad was an addict. My mom was an addict. It runs in the family. And every day we come here and prophesy a God, Jesus Christ, who conquered all through the death. But we are stuck. There's bad news everywhere. And the soil is so soggy, we cannot move on. The air is so polluted with so much toxic, we cannot breathe. I mean, I'm not an expert in politics and war, but before we knew it, we are still trying to figure out how can we uh, live with this COVID pandemic? How can we manage it? Boom, we are in Ukraine. I don't know who is wrong, I don't know who is right, but just to see people being killed every day, it just tells something that we are living in a very toxic world. We are stuck. And the question is, what then do we do when we are suffocated with bad news? Indeed, the disciples decided to be moody, to rebuke Jesus. They didn't want to do anything. I could imagine their teenage behavior right there that they just went in their room and closed their door. They don't want to talk to you. And they are like, Jesus, do your messiahship business. We are done. And because Jesus is Lord, after seeing all that stuckness, that the environment is just toxic, we cannot keep on going in this. In the transfiguration story, Jesus gives us a paradigm on how to live in glory and suffering. We can never separate the two, no matter how much we may like to, but we can never separate the two. The first thing that Jesus did, he retreats from the toxic environment and he moved away from this moody environment that is stagnant in negativity and goes up to the mountain to pray. And you know what? A high mountain in Jewish context is 
just the same as a selected, sacred place where you can meet God. A space where you could talk and cry and laugh and have communion with your creator. And indeed, he took the three with him. And after Jesus prayed and prayed, transfiguration happens. Friends, transfiguration or change cannot happen when we are so much solved in negativity. Transfiguration happens when we seek a sacred place and be in prayer. Transfiguration happens when we put a stop to talking, backbiting, and say this is the time we have to pray. Transfiguration happens when we stop to all be political analysts and say we need to pray for this. Transfiguration happens when we all stop and say and say no, Jesus is our savior in our family and in our kids. This must stop. We have to pray. Even in suffering and confusion, there is space to experience God. There is space to experience the glory of God. Amidst all what is going on, there is glory. And I tell you, if we really take it seriously, the church can be transfigured. There is still hope that Christ is changing and forming us in whatever shape that he wants us to be so that we become a true church. We become true human beings that God intends us to be. We become a church that doesn't focus on earthly things, but a church that understands the fusion of the divine and the human. The fusion of the divine and the human. That's where the struggle is. That we don't understand how we can live in suffering and glory at the same time. I'll come back to that point. But the fun part of the transfiguration story is when Jesus took the three, I mean, he creates the space for them to pray and commune with God. But because of their anger that Jesus is betraying us, uh, we are not going to become cabinet members. We are not going to become ministers. Alas, when they get on top of the mountain, instead of them to experience the communion with God, they went asleep. I mean, I felt so bad when I read that part. I'm like, oh my goodness. It's very easy in our life to miss the moment because we are angry. It's very easy in our life to miss the moment because we are sad. And I would like to think, they just told themselves, I mean, we are not going to pray. They are tired. We have been praying. We have been walking with you, praying and praying. And what we get? is bad news that you're going to die. So what's the purpose of us praying? And so they sleep. But you know what? God never stops to pursue us. He wants us to be with him in his glory. 
And so when they were asleep, Jesus allowed them to rest a bit. But when the transfiguration was happening, he woke them up. It's not written, but I mean, no way they can just walk up and start seeing Jesus being changed into this glorious being. It was purposeful for them to see that even if you sleep, even as a church, you don't pray, you cannot stop the glory of God. Jesus is the son of God. And so when they opened their eyes, they saw Jesus being transfigured, going through some, I mean, this Greek word, morphosis. Jesus being morphosized, being changed. In their view, Jesus was glowing with transcendent glory reserved for every heavenly being and Elijah and Moses was with him. The first question when I read this part was, why? Why Elijah and Moses? I mean, I could think this is the New Testament. Why are they figuring, especially at this special event? And I would like to think that God has his own way to communicate his message to us. The reason why God showed Elijah and Moses at the transfiguration in the New Testament. It's just to teach us that the old and the new can live together and they can commune and bring God's glory. The Lord, the prophets, the good news, each have different approach to human life, but all for good of the humanity. When we fuse together the old and the new, morphosis happens, change happens. The person is transfigured. This is different from transformation. It is the change from inside to outside, like a butterfly. I mean, I, I wasn't a, a biology major, but I, I know what uh, the process that uh, a butterfly went through to become a butterfly, uh, coming from a caterpillar. I mean, you, you cannot even imagine or think that a caterpillar can become a butterfly. Uh, Dave, can you show the slide of the process? I mean, it just started as eggs, and then it went to a caterpillar, and then chrysalis happens, and then in that chrysalis, that's where morphosis is happening. The change of form and shape, everything is changed. And boom, from caterpillar to a butterfly. Beautiful flowers, uh, colors flying around. And I mean, I learned when I came here that in this culture, when the butterfly comes to you, it means good luck. But it went through a process of morphosis, of being changed, so that it can bring good luck to people. The church today is called to this process. I mean, don't mistake transformation and transfiguration. 
Transformation can happen anywhere, everywhere. I can just be this glorious Portia, but when I step out the pulpit, I'm different. Because transformation works from outside. It, it just works with you to, to just be relevant at that moment. But transfiguration is the work that happens from inside to, in, to outside to be another being, a glorious being, not just a usual being, but a glorious being that fits in all situations. I mean, the church today can relate to this. We are stuck in our old histories. As a church, we used to be this. We used to do this. Our forefathers did this. It's very correct. We love our history. We love our church. And we have the contemporary church, which is saying, no, the old doesn't matter. We have to focus on the new. We want everything to be contemporary. And there's always this fight between the traditional and the contemporary. What kind of service can we have? I mean, just imagine to fight over worship service. What kind of worship can we have? But in the transfiguration, Jesus is speaking to us. Hey, friends, the old and the new can mix together. And when they mix together, more forces happen. And a new church is formed in that more forces. Jesus is really asking us to be a church that is willing to come together from the old, from the new, and form something that is beautiful, that brings everybody to the glory of God. Indeed, when, we, when morphosis happens, the church doesn't see its past as a threat or its contemporary as a threat. But the church that is transfigured knows how the old can live well with the new and vice versa. The church that is transfigured knows how to relate with each other. This is what is shown in the transfiguration. The old can relate with the young. The law can relate with the gospel. Not from what people look like to us, but from who they are. When the person is transfigured, you don't just like people by their CV or by their style of clothing. You love people for who they are, and who they are is the image of God. And so the church that is transfigured know how to relate with each other without stabbing the backs of each other. Indeed, this was a beautiful experience. I was praying all the week, God, allow my church to go this experience. We just need a little bit of more forces. We just need a little bit of this fusion that we can taste the glory of you in our time. It was so beautiful that even Peter wanted to keep on experiencing it. I mean, you hear when you read the scripture, he's saying, can we stay here? Can we stay at the top of the mountain and build three tents? 
I mean, we cannot fault Peter for that. The experience was just ecstatic that Peter could not hide his excitement. He wanted to keep on experiencing the experience. Indeed, the same way we get stuck with bad news is the same way we can get stuck with good news. Life can be too good that we forget that there are some who are still down the valley who need our witness. Life can be too good that we can think when we are at the top of the mountain that we are too special to experience the valley. But in this event, Jesus reminds Peter and all of us that even when we are covered by the cloud of success and glory, we still must go down and meet the crowds, from the cloud to the crowds. After the mountaintop experience comes the valley. This is where the work is. There are people who are starving. There are people who are sick. There are people who are dying, who need a transfigured person who can fit in all circumstances without thinking that he or she is too special to fit. Mountaintop is not a dwelling place. It just gives us the state of eternal glory that lays ahead of us. It is the reminder of the promise that we will be fulfilled after our mission is done. And so, it's not a dwelling place. Indeed, from Deuteronomy chapter 2, we hear that our forefathers, the Israelites, had been through a lot of mountaintops and valleys experience. From Egypt, God brings them to Mount Horeb, in the Sinai Peninsula, where they come to the mountain Sinai, where Moses meets up with God to receive the Ten Commandments. From Horeb, they go through the Kadesh Barnea, arriving at Mount Seir, where they are able to see the land of Canaan. Here, they send out spices to the land of Canaan. They go through the hill country of Amorites, passing through the land of the Moabites by the way of Nebo. I have my history right, right? <laughs> and it is at this moment that the spices came back with a report to the people that the land is great, the people are great, the cities are great, with all the walls that look like heavens. And it is at this point, the mountaintop experience, that the Israelites forget who is responsible of their success. At this moment, they reason with themselves that it is their own strength that allowed them to be complacent and uninterested in going further. This is where the text that we read we read picked up. It is the response that sent them on a tailspin in the wilderness, wandering around all too familiar mountain far too long, all for the fear of what it might mean to move forward. And God had to tell them, hey folks, stop wandering around. Stop wandering around. Move on. Make progress toward Canaan. 
I think we too, in our spiritual pursuit of God, we become too comfortable of the mountaintop experience. Sometimes we lose our drives to move on. We lost our zeal for God because God brought us to a new mountain and because we don't know what it might mean to overcome the challenge ahead of us, we choose to simply remain where we are because we feel comfortable as a church. I mean, we are still okay, right? People are still coming to change. So we are okay. Sometimes we think we don't need more forces. We don't need change because we are okay. We are comfortable. And so in this text, God is reminding them, no, either the mountaintop or the valley is not a place of dwelling. Stop wondering. You have to move to some kind of more forces. That's how you can experience your Canaan. It's true, friends, that life is full of ups and downs. If we were to open platform this morning that come and tell us a story, we will see the ups and downs that we have been through. And though we have been through that, allow me to tell you that they are just defining moments. They are just defining moments that God brings us in this journey. They are not the point of life at all, whether high or low. They simply point to the need to keep moving. In our wrestle to grow close to God, you got to keep moving. In our struggle to increase our faith, we must keep moving. In our pursuit to secure our future, we must keep moving. In our striving to raise our children the right way, we must keep moving. In our fight for justice in the world, we must keep moving. The mountaintop is not the destination. But the mountaintop is the vantage point that offers a paranomic view of the new beginning of an adventure all there to be accomplished. This morning, I want to challenge us all. I want to challenge the thinking in us that had caused us to be so stuck in our valleys in our mountaintop experiences. Indeed, both experiences are not an end to itself, but they are means to our end. They are means to our becoming. And I ground this argument in the biblical narrative that he had shown us people like us going through times, but kept moving. I love David. He had been through a lot. And when he reflects on his path, you hear him writing, the Lord is my shepherd. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. Thy rod and thy staff comforts me. Even in front of my enemies, he prepares a table for me, and he anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. So friends, 
glory and suffering are inseparable. And for us to live in this balance, we need to be transfigured people, to become Christ-like in all situations that life throws upon us so that we cannot be confirmed and consumed by this world, but we can transfigure Christ's gospel in the world. Lastly, let me leave you with this metaphor from my village, my experience. I always like my village stories because they, they made me who I am. So in Africa, in Zimbabwe, we live in houses. People were asking me, do you live in shakes or houses? We live in houses built with bricks, but different bricks than you have here. I grew up molding those bricks for sale. And the process of making those bricks goes this way. We locate an ant hill because it has fine sand, fine clay. The particles are so much together that it can make a strong brick. And when we find that good ant hill, we go and dug it up. When we dug it up, we we will use a hammer to break the particles, the bigger particles, to become small particles. And when they come small particles, we go and pour water on that clay, and we soak the clay overnight so that it becomes soft and muddy. We then go the following morning we take our shovels and we start mixing and mixing and mixing until the clay becomes like a smooth paste. Then we take a foaming pan. I mean, it will have like kind of three trays, make like three bricks in a rectangle shape. And then we'll put that muddy, we level, we make sure that it all sits well, and then we put the brick on the ground. And so we lay the bricks there. If we were to ask the brick, like, how do you feel at that moment? They'll be like, oh, yeah, the process was bad, but we are kind of fine because we feel cool here. We are laid on a leveled ground. But that's not the end of the process. It's just the beginning. After two days when the brick dried, we would then go and take the bricks and stack them together in a kind of an oven shape, leaving a hole that we can put fire in there. And so we, we will make that oven and we will put fire in there. And after we put fire, we will seal all the openings with extra mud. And when we seal, the oven has to burn at the highest possible temperature for three days, burning and burning. And we could go overnight to open and add more firewood or coal so that we make sure it burns well. What a horrible experience for a brick. <laughs> and after three days, we go there. The process is over. We start to take apart the oven. And here comes this strong red brick that can build the strongest house ever in Zimbabwe. That brick had built mansions and mansions that we don't even need heating system or cooling system, any kind of air conditioning in the house because the brick itself can adjust to what kind of temperature. 
though it went through a horrible experience. If we were to ask the brick, what's your story? It will tell you, I once been at that anthill, but these folks called human beings come and drag me, and they hate me crazily, and they were brutal on me. They stabbed on me with their feet. They mixed me with this stranger water to make me a mud. They molded me in their own shape. They put me through a furnace, but here I am. I had made them their beautiful house, which can be livable in any extreme temperatures. Friends, this is life. This is life. We go through suffering, we go through glory. We go through the furnace, but all for the beauty of the transfigured person. Enjoy the mountaintop sandwich, but it's not the end. There is glory in suffering. Keep moving. Amen. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.